1: Са два ра подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье проживает Черный кот. Он в усы усмешку прячь, темнота ему, как щит. Все коты поют и плачут.
0: Hello, world, how are you? Welcome to New Books in Russia and Eurasia. Part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. Every week we pick a new book on Russia or Eurasia and talk to the author. This week, it's my pleasure to present you an interview with Arch Getty on his recent book, Yezhov, The Rise of Stalin's Iron Fist. Along with Stalin, Nikolai Yezhov, as the head of the NKVD, was personally responsible for the execution of almost a million Soviet citizens and the arrest, imprisonment, and exile of millions more in the Great Terror of 1937-38. Given his murderous stint stint as police chief, Yezhov has unsurprisingly been called a lot of things, a reptile, a malignant dwarf and akin to a Moscow street urchin. However, until his unceremonious fall and subsequent arrest in April 1939, many thought of Yezhov as charming, courteous, honest, and a good party worker. It is this last quality, a good party worker, that stands at the center of Yuzhov's The Rise of Stalin's Iron Fist. So without further delay, here's our interview with Professor Getty. Enjoy. Hello, Arch. How are you?
1: Hi, Sean. Nice to hear from you.
0: Well, welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Thank you for taking the time to talk to to us about your book, Yezhov, The Rise of Stalin's Iron Fist. My pleasure. Uh, Just to begin, tell us a bit about yourself and why you chose to specialize in the history of Stalinism and the Great Terror.
1: Well, I don't know. I may be uh, the only Russian historian that Oklahoma ever produced, although I wouldn't swear to it. But I grew up in Oklahoma and then uh, went to college on the East Coast. Um, my coming to Russian history was, was kind of an accident. Um, I didn't get there as many people do through Russian literature or Russian culture. Um, I got there entirely by scheduling accident, scheduling accident of, of courses. I needed a course at three o'clock in the afternoon and there was Russian history and I was a history major. So I, I stumbled in there and, um, There was uh, Alfred Reber, uh, who absolutely hooked me from the first day, and even though I thought for a long time I wanted to be a French historian, uh, once I got a taste of Russia, I never looked back. Um, some Some of it, I think, also had to do with the times. It was the 70s when I was in school, and it was a time of alternative politics. It was a time where socialism and communism and Various isms were much more fashionable than they are now. It therefore had a bit of the exotic to it, to study Russia. Um, And uh, it was just uh, the fact, I think, that Russian history wasn't like anybody else's history. You know, I had had grown up on Western European history, modern European history, and I was used to things like uh, Renaissance and Reformation and Enlightenment and... Democracy, industrial revolution, representative government, all these things that are sort of the the, the pegs of Western European history and Russia didn't have any of those. Uh, the, the history there was just entirely different and it therefore had a, an exotic quality to it, a quality that uh, at the time I think we called funky uh, – <laughs> It was unusual and it was exotic, and it was a time of unusual exotic things, and I just got stuck. And why Stalin and why the terror? Well, I had always been interested uh, in dictatorships in general. As, you know, as a teenage boy, I read about Hitler and I read a little bit about Stalin. I was always interested in the idea of uh, totalitarian or so-called totalitarian systems, and the more I read about uh, Stalin's terror, the more I couldn't figure out... A couple of things. First of all, how anybody could live through it, uh, how how someone could survive knowing that there could always be a knock on the door in the night, and and secondly, and the question that sort of drove me to this book: what kind of person administers a terror? Um, what kind of what kind of fellow signs on for this, and what does he think he's doing? Um, it's 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 kind of you know. One of these questions where, you know, is this a nice guy who fell in with a bad crowd? Is this a monster from day one? Uh, it was just a, a question for me always. What kind of person could do this?
0: So the writing about Yuzhov was this kind of the natural course of your work over the years. It kind of led to this point.
1: Yeah, it was a natural course. And again, there was a lot of happenstance, um, a lot of a lot of luck, as there always is in anything having to do with Russia. Um I was working uh, in the Soviet Party archives uh, on questions of terror and violence. And then all of a sudden, one day, Yezhov's personal archive was declassified and available. And um, that was a bit of a dream come true, you know, manna from heaven. And I dropped everything and dived into it because here was, here was the chance, hopefully, to study kind of up close and personal what an administrator of terror was like.
0: And who was this guy, Yezhov? Um, what does his life and career tell us about those Bolsheviks of his generation and the system that they were instrumental in creating?
1: Well, um, he was a short guy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not prepared to you know, uh, put a lot of credence on uh, short guys being wound a little tight. But he was a little fellow. He, uh, he had all the credentials that, that one would look for, I think, um, in a Bolshevik. He had been a worker. in a a factory, the Putilov factory, in fact, where the revolution began in 1917. Then he was a Red Guard in the Civil War. He was uh, a provincial party leader in the 20s. He was involved in agriculture and industry. In other words, his career touched some of the most important historical bases here. And um, I think a a lot of who he was had to do with where he came from. Um, who he was, he was somebody who came from a, a work environment at his factory, where one of the first things the workers did in March 1917 was lynch the foreman. This, is, this was his, his elementary school, uh, a, a school of conflict, a school of violence, a school of settling scores. This had a lot to do with coming from the Russian working class. It had a lot to do with uh, traditions of right and wrong, black and white, friend and foe. Um, he, was, he was also a, a set of contradictions. Um, he was quite obviously and could be a vicious person who with a stroke of a pen could send even his own friends to the firing squad. At the same time, everybody liked him. He was fun at parties. He had a great bar- baritone voice. Women found him charming and gallant. He played with children. He involved himself in charities. He was a, he was a really complicated figure, and it's one of the things that made him interesting to me.
0: What amazes me about your, your the story you tell, I mean, unlike other books who've been written on Yuzhov, they focus on his time as the head of the secret police. But what you look at is his rise, and it's an incredibly rapid rise through the Soviet system. You know, he moves from... Uh, Kazan to Kyrgyzstan and then by the middle of the 1920s he finds his way to Moscow where he gets a job in the party's personnel department and then he's moved from agriculture um, in really short stints of time. I mean he spent six months here, a year or two there and then by 1934 he's appointed to uh, the head of the org bureau, the party's organizational uh, apparatus and then the central control commission which deals with uh, party discipline, and it's this position that places him in Stalin's inner circle. What enabled Yezhov to rise so rapidly through the ranks of the party and state?
1: Well, I think there are probably a lot of factors. Um, as I as I mentioned before, people liked him. For one thing, he was a pleasant fellow. He, he didn't get on anybody's nerves. One. One never finds performance evaluations of him or, or letters of criticism which say you know, he's a bad person. But I think the main thing was he was efficient. He was literally a good party worker. Um, and now, this is uh, – some people have said that Russians are generally not efficient people. Uh, and therefore someone who does work 18 hours a day and make sure that there's follow-through on everything and make sure that every decision is actually implemented, somebody like that is going to stand out. All of his performance reports from, from the very first ones we have in the 1920s say that he is diligent, that he follows through. Um, Ivan Moskvin, one of, his, one of his bosses in the 1920s, said, If you want something done, give it to Yezhov. Yezhov never gives up. In other words, he was, he was, Merit had a lot to do with him moving forward. He was an efficient guy. Um, the other thing, I think, that attracted uh, Stalin's attention by the late 20s, early 30s, was that Yezhov himself did not have an entourage. He was not one of these old Bolshevik barons, one of these patrons who had a kind of a group of loyal followers who followed him around. Yezhov was a loner. Yezhov was uh, a single, hardworking Bolshevik, and this was a type that Stalin liked. And, you know, there are lots of analogs here. Malenkov, Zhdanov, uh, Khrushchev. Uh, this is a certain kind of person. Uh, who They were not famous old Bolshevik revolutionaries who were all full of themselves and thought of themselves as as nobles or grandees or something like that he was not an old Bolshevik who thought that, you know, doing bureaucratic work was beneath him somehow. He liked bureaucratic work. He liked the paperwork. He liked moving things along. He liked getting things done. And in this sense, you know, he he sort of mirrors Stalin. I mean, Stalin was famous for that as well. You know, Stalin didn't mind working behind closed doors in the secretariat while everybody else was out posturing in front of crowds. Uh, This kind of person, this this young, diligent, efficient, loyal person who himself seems not to have any ambition, therefore is not assembling an entourage. This was somebody who who, who Stalin found naturally attractive and, and someone who gravitated to Stalin's entourage. Mm-hmm.
0: And one of the things you, you note is how he, he really mastered the way of presenting himself uh, as a Bolshevik, not as an ambitious person, but as a Bolshevik and mastering this – language of although and the bureaucratic workings of um, the institutions, uh, this was a, a fascinating aspect to his career and why he rose.
1: He was very, very good at this. Um, you know, um, I guess you would call it Bolshevik report writing or, or Bolshevik paperwork. There was a kind of a, a kind of a genre here that that you had to learn. It was very important for Bolsheviks to be self-critical. That was part of the tradition. That was part of the etiquette. It was important for them not to shy away from problems or not to minimize difficulties. At the same time, though, every bureaucrat likes to, to emphasize things that do go right. Every Bolshevik, every bureaucrat likes to emphasize the things that they have done correctly. So what you ended up with was a kind of report from the provinces to Moscow, let's say, Which starts out by saying, we have accomplished A, B, and C. And here there's a lot of glory and self-praise. However, although, we still have to do D, E, and F, which are terrible problems. Yeshov therefore mastered the etiquette of this. An etiquette which didn't have any ambition. It seemed to have praise where praise was due. But it also was honest about mistakes. Honest about things that they had screwed up one way or another in, in his bailiwick, in his locality. So so he, he was able to carry out this sort of proper Bolshevik face. A Bolshevik face that said, we are hard working here, we are doing the best we can, we are not apologizing for our mistakes, we are not you know, trying to get off the hook with objective conditions, this is what we've done right and this is what we've done wrong, period. Sincerely, Nikolai Yezhov. Um, You know, this catered to the Bolshevik traditions of modesty, of self-effacement, of uh, not, you know, presenting nothing but your own ego here and self-criticism and recognition of error. He got this language down early. Mm
0: -hmm. And one of the things you notice that the context for all of this is that the party needs people like Yuzhov. They don't have – I think at one point you say there are so few Communist Party members out there that you can rely on. People like Yuzhov, who are talented and are present themselves as sincere or are truly sincere in their work, really stand out and really can um, be plucked out of certain positions and desired to be moved around. Especially by the mid nineteen twenties into Moscow,
1: and it was definitely a seller's market. Um, This was a bureaucracy and administration that was expanding quickly. I mean, it expanded from zero in nineteen seventeen. They had no bureaucracy to run the, you know, to govern the largest country on earth. It expanded dramatically, and there was a shortage of of talent, a shortage of people capable of carrying out orders, implementing instructions, a shortage of people who, like Yezhov, were willing to stay up late at night to get the report done, a shortage of people willing to work 18 hours a day and skip their vacation and things like this. And therefore, Yezhov and, and people like him benefit to a certain extent from supply and demand. There aren't very many like them. Um, Yezhov, Malenkov, Shdanov, some of these others of his of his cohort. When when it comes time for them to get a new job, they're typically offered four or five to choose from. There are more jobs than there are people, and somebody like Yezhov is always in high demand. And this combination of efficiency. Uh, self-effacement, proper etiquette, and a crying shortage of administrators. I mean, this this really explains his rocketing up the ladder.
0: By the middle of the book, you kind of turn away from Yuzhov on an individual level, and you turn your attention to the party personnel system. And at one point, you call this a struggle of personalities. What role did personality and patronage play in this system? And secondly, What made someone like Yezhov, who is a provincial administrator during the struggle between Stalin and Trotsky, what made somebody like him, say, back Stalin as opposed to a Trotsky?
1: Well, these are – it's really sort of two different questions here. The party personnel system was to a considerable extent based on patronage. Um, Old Bolsheviks could throw their weight around, uh, Grandes, uh, aristocrats could throw their weight around and get – people appointed who they wanted appointed. At the same time, though, below the surface, there's a staff in party headquarters, a staff which is trying to make a sort of Weberian rational bureaucracy, the right man for the right job. So there's always a tension going on here between what is a kind of a bureaucracy in the process of being born and aristocrats coming downstairs and waving their arms and interrupting the entire process with some kind of patronage appointment. Um, So the party personnel system is is trying, it's struggling to be efficient and rational, but not really succeeding. Now, the question of why someone like Yezhov would side with Stalin and Trotsky goes back to sort of the history of the party before there was Trotskyism, the history of the party from 1919, 2021, when things are just getting established in the localities. What you have there is, uh, you know, no system at all. In a given town, a given city, there were Bolsheviks who found themselves there and sort of self-constituted themselves as the local party committee. We are going to run Omsk because we happen to be here. Well, in that group, there might be three or four big personalities, each with their own little entourages, and they start sniping at each other and competing with each other and picking with each other. Uh, The Russian word for this, it's a wonderful word, skloki, spats. These are spats. These are personal fights. These are nasty little underminings. They've got no ideological content at all. They've got no political content at all. It's a struggle uh, among little patronage groups in various towns. This, this sklocky, this, this eruption in 1919 and 20 paralyzed the party. And everybody in the party understood that unless something could be done about this, the party was going to decompose. It would just fly apart centrifugally. Stalin was the one who spoke for stopping all these spats. He was the one who said, look, things are about to fall apart here. What we have to do is have one person in each locality be the responsible secretary. He's in charge. He's Moscow's guy. We back him. Everybody else fall into line." That was an overwhelmingly popular thing in the party because it was the way out of paralysis. It was the way out of this this chaos. Therefore, when Trotsky comes along or after him, Zinoviev or after him, Bukharin, when oppositionists come along with purportedly ideological platforms, they're regarded by lower-level party workers like Yezhov as just the latest spat. Just the latest guy with personal ambition and an entourage trying to disrupt things. What, what leads people to Stalin is, is people who are sick and tired of disruption. And Trotsky is, is condemned. He loses locally, not because of his ideology, but because he's rocking the boat with personal ambition.
0: And so people like Yezhov who are out in the middle of nowhere are looking at what's going on in Moscow and they see this kind of disruption as harmful to their own positions of power and, and their career, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, Yezhov sitting out in uh, Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzia, he's reading about Trotsky and Stalin dueling on the Chinese question or the question the ins and outs of the German revolution in 1923 – these these hardworking young Bolsheviks out in the provinces are scratching their heads trying to figure out what all this is about. What it looks like to them is some new egotistical jerk moving in with an entourage <laughs> and starting a new squabble for personal reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: So in some ways, the, if you're looking at it from the provinces in, the ideological questions that a lot of historians have emphasized over the years as kind of principled and, 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 and integral to the Bolshevik system – um, it's something else. It had they those guys like Yuzhov, have a completely different interpretation of what's really going on.
1: Completely different take on the thing. And you know we focus on ideology because we're intellectuals. It's what we're used to. It's what we look for. <clears throat> but to the Yuzhovs of the world, it's not clear at all that China or Germany had anything to do with real life. What had to do with real life was efficiency, keeping the party together making the party somehow run in, in in a reasonable sort of way. And people like Trotsky looked like troublemakers more than anything else. And, you know, people like Yezhov were not stupid. They watched over the years how, as Trotsky lurched from the left to the right to the left, and Bukharin went from being a left Bolshevik to a right Bolshevik, and how Stalin went from left to right to left to right to left, all these big time players are switching back and forth on the ideological spectrum. What the Yejoffs of the world notice is that every time somebody lurches from left to right, maybe for the best of reasons, he takes his entourage with him, that this is about entourage, this is about groupism, as it was called at the time, this was about clannishness, and the ideology seems much less important to the Yezhovs of the world than this groupism.
0: Yuzhov's career takes an important turn when uh, Sergei Kirov is assassinated on December 1st, 1934. Stalin places him in charge of this investigation. Now, how did Yuzhov conduct this investigation and what were the results? And why did Stalin choose him in the first place?
1: Well, Stalin gets this news that Kirov's been assassinated out of the blue. He has no idea who might have done it. He had no idea who might have helped him. It's quite natural in cases of of assassinations like this to ask the question right away, where were the bodyguards? Where were the cops? How could this have happened? Were the cops incompetent? Were the cops in on it somehow? Who investigates the investigators? basically. It's it's just a very practical problem Stalin faces. Now, the NKVD, the secret police, was itself divided into various warring clans and factions. Who then do you put in charge of investigating what part of the NKVD so you'll get an honest read on the thing? Uh, if if you put, I mean, Yagoda is the head of the NKVD. If you pick an anti-Yagoda guy to do a cop, to do the investigation, you're going to get an anti-Yagoda conclusion. If you pick a Yagoda guy, you're going to get all kinds of backing and filling and apologizing and accidental kinds of conclusions. What Stalin needed at that time was somebody completely outside the police bureaucracy to investigate a murder that may well have involved police incompetence or complicity. Yezhov was perfect for that because he had been working for years in personnel, uh, party personnel systems, state personnel systems. He literally knew a lot of people. He had his own Rolodex. He had his own card files. Therefore, the perfect person to investigate the cops was a non-cop who nevertheless knew where the sort of clan and factional bodies were buried
0: and, and what were the results of this investigation? I mean, how did he go about coming to conclusions that he came to?
1: Well, um, first of all, he took charge of the investigation and really, really directed it personally. He, he told the police investigators what to do, who to question, when to question people in what order. What he came up with in the end, though, was that it was a case not of police complicity but of police bungling. And this is the first time Yezhov makes the case to Stalin that the secret police are incompetent. He will he will latch onto this over the next few years as a kind of an issue, uh, his own issue. He never misses a chance when something goes wrong, um, when an investigation goes wrong. He never misses the chance to remind Stalin that the police are screw ups here, that the police are not very efficient. Uh, one of the first things he says when he gets to Leningrad uh, to investigate, he, he telegrams Stalin and said, I've become convinced that nobody here has any idea how to investigate anything. Um, now, I think that beginning at the time of the Kirov assassination, Yezhov has his sights set on the NKVD job. Now, there's no proof of that. Of course, he never said that. Of course, he never wrote that. But this begins a kind of steady drumbeat on his part to keep planting the bug in Stalin's ear that the people currently running the police are not up to the job.
0: And um, why do you think he wants to be the head of the police of all things?
1: Who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, true. But at the same time though, he's also targeting or at least he he begins to target former oppositionists. How does this play a role in in his quest for the head of the police?
1: Well, Yezhov sincerely believes that the – particularly the left opposition, the Trotsky Zinoviev opposition, he sincerely believes that they're rotten. He sincerely believes that they are in fact assassins. Uh, this is perfectly clear from his notes of the assassination, the card file he starts to assemble in Leningrad, uh, the weirdness later of, of keeping the bullets that were used to execute these guys in his drawer. He really believed they were wrong. And therefore, if if Trotsky and Zinoviev and their people are really guilty, how to explain why the cops didn't tumble to it? How to explain why the secret police has been so slow to unearth what to Yezhov is an obvious conspiracy. Therefore, what, what Yezhov is trying to do here is several things at once. He's trying to undermine Yagoda with Stalin, discredit him, so maybe he, Yezhov, will get the job. He's trying to do it, though, on two different tracks. One track is the police are incompetent. The other track is, well, maybe maybe some of the police are in on it. But he never actually says that, and this is, this is his real cleverness here. He never really says that. In fact, sometimes he says the opposite. He knows, he knows what Stalin wants to hear and how Stalin wants to hear it. For example, if Yuzhov wants to accuse Yagoda and the MKVD of uh, complicity with Bukharin and the right-wing Bolsheviks, he does it by saying – well, we have some testimonies here that maybe the rights and lefts were in this in this together, but I personally don't believe it. I personally don't think this is true. Uh, this is disinformation. This is impossible. What he's done there is plant the bug in Stalin's ear while at the same time disassociating himself from it. Uh, he is very good at this at this kind of tactic, um, pretending to be doing one thing while in fact doing another,
0: mm-hmm. and. Okay, take this up to 1936. Now he's named the head of the secret police. Um, shortly thereafter, the terror is unleashed, and the terror takes a variety of forms. Two, of, two main forms are former oppositions are put on trial in a series of show trials, and the other is this mass operations of violence, of, of shooting by quota that occurs. What did... Yuzhov think of this as best we know? What did he think of this political violence? And, And in your estimation, did he sincerely believe that the USSR was besieged by enemies?
1: I think he did sincerely believe that in the elite, there was a huge segment of old Bolsheviks who were either actively conspiring against Stalin or would in the case in the time of crisis. He seems to have genuinely believed that. Now, where, where do you get – how do you get from that to killing them? Well, Yezhov gets there and, and he himself says this only obliquely but, but others like him uh, say it more openly. If some other old Bolshevik or group of old Bolsheviks intends to replace Stalin, how would, exactly would they do that? Well, one way would be to diselect him at the next party congress, but that's not really possible because Stalin controls you know, the, the people who are voting at the congress. Therefore, if you want to remove Stalin, maybe for the best of motives, that doesn't matter. If you want to remove Stalin and you're a, a member of the elite, it's got to be some kind of palace coup. It's got to be some kind of, you know, moving into the Kremlin, neutralizing Stalin and his guys, putting out some kind of cover story about, you know, just like Salvador Allende, he valiantly died at his post. Um, the point is, Yezhov and Stalin and the others in their circle understood that if anybody did replace Stalin, they couldn't leave Stalin alive, and they couldn't leave Stalin's lieutenants alive. Therefore, for the Yezhovs of the world believing that there was a conspiracy out there. This was just, this was a gunfight and they had to draw first.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did this kind of mentality, uh, you know, where does this mentality come from? I mean, earlier in the book, you, you state this contrast between, or this development of a mentality of us versus them that's kind of concretized during the civil war. Um, do you, does this play a big role in, in Yezhov and people's like him worldview of of the situation?
1: It does. It does. But I think as far as the elite or suspicions of the elite are, is concerned, I think it's much more important to, to understand who these guys were, who these old Bolsheviks were, who Trotsky and Bukharin and, and this whole generation, they were literally professional revolutionaries. That was their CV. That's what they had always done. They had no other skills, essentially, uh, aside from maybe writing ideology or philosophy or something like that. Their métier, their job, was conspiracy. And it always had been. The assumption, therefore, that Yezhov shared with Stalin and everybody was that if I go to your house for dinner, we are going to talk about politics. And if we are friends and you are known to be an enemy of Stalin, that makes me an enemy of Stalin. How could it be otherwise? Because we don't know how to do anything but conspire with each other. So if you begin with this premise that the old Bolshevik revolutionaries, professional revolutionaries, are also professional conspirators, it becomes very easy to believe that somebody is up to something. And if somebody is up to something, surely his friends are up to it with him. Now, this kind of purge of the elite... Um, is very, very different than the mass operations in which, you know, 750,000 peasants and, and people off the street were shot in 37 and 38. This particular terror, it seems, um, I've just written an article about this, seems to have been something that Yezhov and even Stalin were not particularly excited about. This is something that was advocated by the regional party secretaries as a, as a tool of governance. Stalin had said, as early as 1933, we're finished with mass operations. He said it routinely, and he said it as late as the beginning of 1937. As part of Yezhov's campaign against Yagoda. Yezhov says, mass operations are ridiculous. We need to target people, target enemies individually. Then, all of a the sudden, they launch mass operations, but it's only after considerable political pressure from the provinces. The provinces are scared to death that they can't control the population without mass violence.
0: And this is also in the context of um, the new constitution and their plans to actually go forward with democratic elections.
1: Yeah, they seem – the Stalinists seem in 1937 to have seriously flirted with the idea of democratic elections for Soviets, not for the party, uh, contested seats – more than one candidate for each job. The regional party leadership is horrified by all this because they know just how scary it is out there in Omsk and Tomsk and far places from Moscow. They don't want to give up the gun as an implement of rule. Stalin is trying to move not away from the gun but toward more political measures of governance. And the mass operations, therefore, unlike the the purge of the elite – um, was something that Stalin wasn't the first one to think of. He agreed to it, and Yezhov agreed to it, but only under considerable pressure from the provinces.
0: Hmm. Uh, well, that leads actually into my next question is, and, and I guess Yezhov can be a symbol for, for others out there and their own kind of personal power and their efforts to exert influence on Stalin. How do we evaluate Yezhov as a powerful player in Stalin's government? Um, was, he really, was he merely a tool, as some historians have argued, or did he have his own interests and influences, and how did he exercise these influences, and to what end?
1: You know, part of our problem here, I think, is that we have a limited vocabulary for, for analyzing situations like this. Um, we imagine, perhaps, that the Politburo should have been a kind of a debating society with all points of view in it. And you have leftists and you have rightists and there's a free and open debate going on here about what they ought to do. Um, That was never the case in the Politburo. That's uh, the exception rather than the rule. The Politburo had always been, from Lenin's time, a factional thing in which a majority controlled the discourse in the Politburo. That was was the the basis. Therefore, people like Yezhov or Khrushchev – or Molotov, or Malenkov, any of these uh, Stalin lieutenants, they were not politicians who were able to challenge Stalin in the Politburo. On the other hand, it never occurred to them to do so. Why would they do so? Um, Stalin, their, their careers, Molotov's career, Yezhov's career, they were tied to Stalin's success. They were team players because it was in their interest to do so. It was in their interest to be that way. At the same time, though, they were able to push their own agendas uh, – they were good at this. They had to be good at this um, – by, if not manipulating Stalin, at least telling him things in ways that they could secure a particular kind of result. You know, this is, this is, this is an old story. I mean you can go all the way back to, to Roman times, you know, the clever slave who's able to influence the master. Uh, it's, a, it's a really old story in politics. All of these guys knew what the boss liked to hear. They knew how he wanted to hear it. And they knew how to present things to him to make something that they wanted to come to pass much more likely. So they are, they are not independent politicians, but nor are they slaves. It's something in between, and we really don't have a vocabulary for it, but we should because this is the most common form of committee organization that there is. Right. right? Show me a cabinet anywhere in the world in which the prime minister appoints opponents. It just doesn't happen that way. Everybody is a team player in the Politburo, but that doesn't make them slaves.
0: And then once somebody like, like – when somebody like Yuzhov gets to Moscow and he's in important positions of power and then the head of the police, he also has an up on Stalin in a way because Stalin is dependent on Yuzhov for information.
1: Exactly. So, so
0: he can control or shape the information in a way that it has a lot of impact on policy.
1: Right. And and Molotov had the same power in foreign affairs and Kaganovich had the same power in transport. These were people whom Stalin had delegated vast areas of of the bureaucracy too and in that sense he was considerably at their mercy for information and recommendations we know that stalin spent a lot of his time trying to establish alternate forms of communication in all these areas whether through the police or control commissions or letters to the editor because i mean you're absolutely right here if if kaganovich for example who's in charge of the entire transportation system how could he be considered a slave Insofar as everything Stalin knows or hears about transport comes to him from Kaganovich. Now, yes, Kaganovich is not going to go off on his own and build high-speed rail to Kiev or something like that or do something Stalin doesn't want, but that doesn't mean that that Kaganovich is powerless. In fact, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: 1938. Uh, there is a purge of the purgers, and Yezhov is arrested. He's accused of a whole host of um, accusations of being a spy, etc., etc. Uh, what leads to his downfall, and how do you explain this eerie moment right before he's shot that he says that he'll die with Stalin on his lips?
1: Well, I think to take, to take the questions in reverse order, he was a Stalinist. He was a Stalinist. If you read his final statement to the court that convicted him, he believes that Stalin was right, but that he Yezhov had been done in by his enemies, who had who had blackened him in Stalin's eyes. <laughs> the same way Yezhov had blackened other people, you know, in Stalin's eyes. Same trick. He loves Stalin. He believes that. Stalin is is right, Stalin is a god, Stalin is the only hope of the country, and therefore either Stalin has been misled, in my case, in Yezhov's case, or for some political reason I have to die, and that's okay too. Um, there's no sense in, in Yezhov's mind that Stalin has made any mistakes or done anything wrong. Now, the reason for Yezhov's fall, I mean, one can think of a lot of them, um, he knew too much, obviously, about what had happened in the previous two years. But on the other hand, um, his successor, Beria, uh, lasted to the end of Stalin's days, and he knew he knew too much too. Um, the, the best that I was able to figure out was that Yezhov was becoming, by the second half, certainly by the fourth quarter of 1938, a neurotic drunk. He was drinking all the time, and it's not hard to see how his job would drive him to drink. I mean, no question about that. Um, He is drinking a lot. He is is babbling to all kinds of people about what's going on. He is having dinner parties in which he gets horribly drunk and talks out of school about what he's doing during the daytime. One of the the evidences for this is that after Yezhov is arrested – Uh, everybody who he had ever invited over to his house was arrested. His wife was a literary editor. She had a kind of a salon. They're all arrested. Yezhov's nieces and nephews who lived with him in the apartment and probably heard his drunken ramblings, they were arrested. Um, In Yezhov's last letter to Stalin, he apologizes for drinking too much. Um, I think what Stalin decided was that this guy had become a liability. This guy had become a loose cannon. He was drinking all the time and he had to therefore be cauterized and everybody around him who he might have talked to needs to be cauterized. Not necessarily because he knew too much uh, because, like I said, Beria knew too much too, um, but because one thing that Stalin could not tolerate was loose lips.
0: Mm-hmm. Does Yushov have any uh, relatives He has
1: a surviving adopted daughter who lives in Magadan. She was raised in an orphanage. She was eight years old when he was arrested, so she has only the the vaguest memories of him. Um, She lives in the Far East. She journeys to Moscow periodically to file, file papers with the federal prosecutor to try to get her father's good name restored. Yezhov is only one of a handful of people, most of them secret police officials, who have not been rehabilitated officially and formally as Stalin's victims. Every time she does it, uh, she is denied and goes back to Magadan uh, to her retirement. So one, one surviving daughter, the rest of his family was executed.
0: Wow. Have you tried to get in contact with her?
1: Uh, she doesn't give interviews or talk to anybody.
0: Wow, I see. Well, thank you for your time. Um, just to kind of wrap things up, I mean, it's a very interesting book and, and very interesting to hear you talk about it. So what are you up to now? What's, what's next?
1: Well, I'm working on a book now called um, Stalinist Neo-Traditionalism. It's a kind of a broad-ranging, really anthropological study of uh, political practice in the Stalin period, uh, political practices, and it seeks to find their historical origins. Um, What I'm going to argue is that a lot of what we regard as Stalinist innovation or a lot of what we regard as uh, political practice under Stalin, in fact, has roots going back hundreds of years. Everything from Lenin's tomb to uh, holding the family responsible for the crimes of the father – the political patronage system of grandees and patrons and clients, a whole lot of this goes back a very, very long time. And therefore, the great watershed of 1917, at least in terms of practices, not ideology, but practices, may not be such a big watershed in terms of how politicians actually functioned. Um, it's about informal practices. It's about unconscious practices, I think. Uh, the Bolsheviks do things, uh, procedures, initiatives, PR campaigns, simply because it occurs to them to do it that way. And it occurs to them to do it that way, uh, I think, for, for what Ned Keenan called deep structures of Russian history and culture.
0: And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when, when do we ex- you expect to have this out?
1: Oh, probably sometime next year.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. It was a fascinating interview, and um, we can't wait to see your next
1: book. My pleasure. Nice talking to you, Sean.
0: Thanks. We've been speaking with Professor Arch Getty about his book, Yuzhov, The Rise of Stalin's Iron Fist. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasia. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next week when New Books in Russia and Eurasia talks to Claudia Verhoven about her fascinating book, The Oddman Karakos of Imperial Russia, Modernity and the Birth of Terrorism.
1: Until then, goodbye.